The result was the Paris Agreement. Last month, the United States and China, the world's two largest economies and largest emitters, formally joined that agreement together. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. As president, I immediately rejoined the Paris Agreement. And as of today, the United States is officially, once again, a party to the Paris Agreement, which we helped put together. From Obama to Trump to Biden, the United States has had a roller coaster experience with the Paris Climate Agreement. Why is the agreement so complex? Let's break it down. Hey, welcome to Operation Climate, a podcast made by young people for young people, where we break down environmental issues through conversations with cool people. Hello, I'm Georgie, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Matthew. So, Matthew, what actually is the Paris Climate Agreement? So, the Paris Climate Agreement, also known as the Paris Climate Accord, is one of the largest international climate agreements to date. It was signed in 2016, and the agreement allowed individual countries to pledge their own nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, for the collective goal of minimizing temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. These nationally determined contributions gave countries a way to individually create their own targets for reducing their emissions by a certain date and even improve on those goals, much like the ones that Britain and the United States have done this April in improving their NDC contributions. But all of this seems a little bit distant, so why does it matter to us? Well, this is basically our last shot. To preserve the Earth and our current way of living, we need to work together globally to reduce emissions and limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. With the support of 189 countries, the Paris Agreement has the potential to be immensely impactful in making the changes that are needed to sustain our planet. So, to investigate the ins and outs of the Paris Climate Agreement, today we'll talk to Stefan Schaefer, a researcher at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies at Potsdam, Germany. He has appointments at Oxford, Harvard, and the University of Vienna, and is a specialist in democratic politics and climate change. Let's dive in. Dr. Stefan Schaefer, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Matthew. Would you mind telling us a bit of your backstory and how you became involved in climate research? I've uh, actually encountered the topic of climate geoengineering first when I was still a PhD student working with uh, a professor at the time. Um, My background is in international relations. And the professor I was working with was my supervisor. Uh, He was invited by uh, the Federal Ministry for Education and Research in Germany to uh, author a study on the politics of climate engineering. And so he recruited me to help him uh, with that study. And that's how I came to work on, uh, well, first climate geoengineering and then more broadly also climate change. Great. So this season on Operation Climate, we're talking about carbon neutrality goals. So I'd like to ask first off, do you see room for hope, hope in cutting emissions and mitigating climate change? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, There is, of course, I mean, there's much happening uh, in terms of uh, trying to reduce emissions. Um, Of course, the question is, I guess what you're trying to get at, uh, is that enough, right? Is it going to be enough 
to achieve these very ambitious uh, goals that have been set out, for example, in the Paris Climate Agreement, right, with its 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius corridor of, of warming that uh, ideally should not be uh, surpassed. And there, indeed, that's where I then perhaps uh, become a little skeptical of whether that is an, an, an achievable goal. But in general, I'd say yes. I mean, uh, and, and not just in terms of reducing emissions, but in terms of uh, responding to climate change uh, in in a broader sense, perhaps you know, including uh, ways of adapting to climate change. I think a lot can be can be done and is being done. So you just recently co-authored a brief article last year or two years ago in 2019 in the journal Science entitled "The Promises and Perils of the Paris Agreement." Could you kind of take our listeners through some of these positives and negatives of the Paris Agreement? Sure. Well, I mean, the Paris Agreement is, is a huge diplomatic achievement uh, in international climate politics after the, the 2009 disappointment uh, in Copenhagen, 2015 in Paris is really when um, uh, states came together and, and managed to agree on some very important uh, matters concerning climate change. So the promise, I think, specifically for, for me and the way in which we approach it in, in this article on science that you mentioned, is that there is in Paris uh, a sense of handing back down to uh, nation states the authority for um, developing strategies to uh, mitigate climate change, to reduce their emissions. These are the so-called nationally determined contributions, which are voluntary targets that states submit that they promise to work towards uh, achieving. And that, I think, is uh, an advance over kind of centrally negotiated binding targets approach uh, that dominated climate politics uh, before. The perils, on the other hand, are uh, that this uh, indeed may not, uh, in the calculations uh, that currently dominate how we think about climate change, uh, these voluntary contributions may not add up in the end to the ambitious uh, targets, to the and CO2 budgets that one would have to stay in to um, uh, limit global warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. Just to highlight the main points of Dr. Schaefer's answers so far, climate politics is not just about reducing carbon emissions, but also adapting to climate change. For the Paris Climate Agreement, the lack of a central authority is both a positive and a negative. Countries can set goals that are attainable for themselves, but this also means that these voluntary contributions, also known as NDCs, may not be enough to meet the targets of the Paris Climate Agreement. Going along this Paris Agreement, some say that the structure of allowing nations to voluntarily commit their NDCs or nationally determined contributions allows them to slack off, that they get the freedom of choosing their own timeline for reducing emissions. What would you, what would you say about this? Well, it's, it's correct if you think about it from the standpoint of kind of a central authority that would determine what the appropriate thing to do is, what the appropriate level of ambition is. And if you kind of have that imaginary uh, kind of global policymaker, global steering approach in, in mind as the best way of, of organizing a political response to climate change, then of course, Paris Agreement approach, which is uh, much more decentralized, falls short. But I think, you know, we also have to think about what uh, realistic pathways are for achieving some kind of common response to, uh, to climate change. And to say, you know, there is a shared uh, agreement that uh, uh, there should be some 
level of ambition involved in developing responses, and we should continually kind of try and be more ambitious and, you know, submit our plans uh, uh, under the Paris Agreement, and we should, you know, kind of monitor our progress, then that, I think, is uh, perhaps a more realistic approach than to say, you know, kind of have a top-down steering approach where you say, this is what you have to achieve, and if you do not achieve, then you have failed, and uh, there's not enough uh, being done. So uh, in that sense, Yes, of course, if you think about it from that centralized perspective, it falls short. But uh, I think from a political uh, perspective of what uh, uh, what can in fact be achieved and how, uh, then I think it has a lot of advantages. Like he said, the Paris Agreement doesn't have any centralized governing body. However, that's not to say that it won't get things done, as there's a lot of political weight and influence that can be enforced within the agreement. For example, the United States being a part of the agreement is huge, as they are the second largest emitter worldwide, and the U.S. is such a large part of the global economy that they have a large pull in agreements like this, and thus, the U.S. being a part of the agreement sends a message to other countries about the importance of it, and really helps to enforce the goals that the Paris Agreement aims for. Now we're talking about a decentralized agreement in the Paris Climate Agreement, like Georgie was saying. But there are some central organizations that surround climate politics. Those are the UNFCCC and the IPCC. These are organizations that we heard of in the episode with Dr. Drew Schindel when he talked about his time serving with the IPCC. And today we talked to Dr. Schaefer more about how these organizations can play a role specifically within climate governance. Of the two that you mentioned, the IPCC is the slightly older institution. It was founded in 1988. It's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And uh, it has since 1990, when it published its first assessment report, published a series of assessment reports, uh, always several years apart, and sometimes also special reports. And uh, what the IPCC uh, does, what it's mandated to do, is to uh, compile the state of the art uh, on climate science and the impacts of climate change and possible response options to make them accessible to the public and to policymakers. And the uh, idea has always been that this would then inform the uh, negotiations at uh, especially the uh, UNFCCC that you mentioned, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was uh, signed uh, in 1992. And uh, that is the uh, institution in which uh, states come together to negotiate uh, about climate change. And uh, that there's always been a strong kind of divide between different uh, interest groups or different states that have different interests involved in, in climate politics. As Dr. Schaefer mentioned, the IPCC puts out regular assessment reports. Just last week, they released assessment report six, and the outlook is bleak. We're not reaching the targets that we need to, so there may be other options to resort to in addition to simply mitigation. Let's hear what Dr. Schaefer had to say. So we've also talked about negative emissions technologies throughout the season on Operation Climate. As in your article, our current forecasts rely on these technologies to hit 1.5 and 2 degree targets. And these technologies aren't yet even proven to work on a large scale. 
What do you think about our current reliance on technological advances to meet these 1.5 and 2 degree goals? More generally, perhaps uh, kind of imagined future technological change or uh, sinking costs or costs for, for technologies have always been a part of constructing scenarios of future climate change and how to meet future climate change targets. So uh, in that sense, negative emissions technologies are not necessarily new. But uh, it's interesting that they're, specific, they're particularly interesting because uh, they've allowed for a kind of a conceptual change in how we imagine the future of climate change. Because until negative emissions technologies were uh, introduced on this large scale that you mentioned, the idea was always, of course, uh, that emissions would simply have to be reduced to zero by everyone uh, so that climate change can be limited. You know, that involved also imagining all sorts of future technologies and uh, changes in behavior. Um, uh, these are all assumptions that uh, modelers make to devise pathways or scenarios for how climate change can be limited in the future. But with negative emissions, uh, the conceptual change is that you can now imagine that perhaps not everyone would have to reduce their emissions to zero, because if some begin taking uh, emissions out of the atmosphere, CO2 out of the atmosphere, uh, that would mean uh, that if that is done on a sufficiently large scale, that elsewhere uh, CO2 could perhaps still be uh, emitted. And that creates a whole new terrain that politics has to navigate now of assigning, you know, who would be uh, taking out how much CO2 out of the atmosphere and who would still be allowed to emit CO2, or what sectors perhaps. So this could be between countries, between sectors. Uh, so it really changes in, in, in some important ways the politics of climate change. And that, I think... The reverberations of that aren't fully felt yet. A subset of this geoengineering technology is carbon dioxide removal, otherwise known as negative emission technologies. These take the form of afforestation or reforestation and forest management, or direct air capture, pulling carbon directly from the atmosphere, to bioenergy and carbon capture and storage, where food is grown, burned for energy, and then stored deep underground, having no emissions. All of these are very, very young technologies that have not been proven to work on a large scale. So why is it that the IPCC reports rely on it so heavily? Why is it to reach our Paris Climate Accord goals we have to rely on these negative emission technologies being developed. We'll see how accurate these forecasts are for this technological development. One of the implications certainly of this huge reliance on, on uh, negative emissions technologies is uh, that targets that would otherwise not appear uh, plausibly feasible all of a sudden are, after all, feasible because you can simply assume that later on CO2 will be removed out of the atmosphere. So it's like a shifting, perhaps, of, of responsibility uh, that could occur either between, uh, say, states or sectors, but also between the present and the future, right? So present generations could simply, you know, in their calculations, assume that, well, future generations, you know, in 2070, 2080, 2090, whenever are just going to you know, take out, have these technologies available that will take out huge amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere. And therefore, we in the present can relax our ambition. To summarize Schaefer's point, the Paris Climate Agreement relies on negative emissions technologies to justify its ambitious targets. 
The problem is that this technology is still in development, so we are still continuing to push the burden onto future years and future generations. For many of us, international climate relations seem distant. They're a faraway meeting of powerful people behind closed doors, and at some points we can't help but to feel a little bit powerless in those decisions. So in your opinion, why is this topic important to the students of today? Well, uh, like you said, they are the future generations, right? So uh, they will be the ones living with potentially much more severe climate change than we're experiencing already even today. And it is, you know, I mean, it's, I, I wonder if how you described it is entirely accurate because I see, especially in young people today, such strong uh, engagement with this subject of, of climate change, right? So you've had climate movements, um, youth movements in uh, the US, in Europe and elsewhere uh, this past year. I guess, I mean, it might have slowed down with uh, the pandemic that we're all living through at the moment, but certainly before that, I mean, this was what really seemed to be very important to young people. So I think there's actually quite, you know, uh, a strong sense of engaging with this, this topic and also perhaps in, in many parts, you know, uh, a certain unhappiness or a certain, uh, uh, you know, critique of the way in which this topic is being approached by current people in charge, right, on the uh, scientific and political side. So what can students do to learn more or even become more involved in these processes of climate governance, both at their local and, and larger levels? Well, I mean, for me, as, as someone with a specific disciplinary background, I think it's important to think through how the science and politics of, of climate and climate change hang together and how they um, come to create kind of the the conditions in which we think about what uh, climate change is and uh, what can be done about it. So I'm speaking here uh, from, you know, as someone working with approaches from uh, the discipline of science and technology studies and political theory and cultural anthropology. So I think that kind of, of reflection is, uh, is an important part of, of thinking through what climate science and politics means today and what can be done about them. And then, of course, I mean, there are the, the activist movements that I mentioned before that students are, are driving. I mean, this is something that is already happening and that is, to, to a large extent, you know, being car carried forward by students. I mean, you know, the people on, on, uh, on my side of the classroom um, ha have reacted to this, right? They were not the drivers. I mean, this was something that now uh, universities organize, you know, lectures for future. Say, I've been invited to give a talk in a series called Lectures for Future, right? Which is, of course, in response to the Fridays for Future protests. Uh, which is, you know, then really something that's been driven, uh, you know, by uh, uh, younger people today. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Schaefer. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So it's pretty clear that the Paris Climate Agreement is a big deal. This agreement is one of the only ways that countries are working together to fight climate change on a large scale. Unfortunately, though, it hasn't been enough. Just last week, the UN's IPCC released a report on climate change that is being dubbed Code Red for Humanity. This report makes clear that the world needs to take bold action as soon as possible if we want to prevent the worst of the worst effects of climate change from hitting the planet. This means that agreements like the Paris Agreement need to be strengthened and countries need to be more active and aggressive in achieving their goals. So, as individuals, what can we do to make an impact on such a large issue? There are actually many ways that we can push our governments to take action on this. 
For one, you can call and email your representatives. You can also go to climate protests and join local environmental movements. And one of the most important things you can do is just talking to the people around you about the importance of this problem. Together, we can show the people in charge that climate matters. And if we can help fight for more action and initiative in global agreements like the Paris Agreement, we can help move closer to a sustainable planet. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Operation Climate. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else that you find your podcasts in order to stay updated about future episodes. Visit our website at bit.ly slash Operation Climate Podcast for a full transcript of this episode and for more information and links that you can explore to learn more about this topic that we covered today. Follow us on our socials. We are at Operation Climate on Instagram. And lastly, we want to hear from you. So write a review on Apple Podcasts. That would help us so much. And send us your feedback and your messages through our website. Email us. You can DM us on Instagram. You can fill out our feedback form, which is on our website. And if you're a student listening to this podcast, head to our website to fill out our student stories form to get the chance to have your story and voice featured on a future episode of Operation Climate. Thanks so much, and we hope you join us next time. See ya.